brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. ordered that the 22nd day of February 1862 be the day for a general movement of the land and naval forces of the United States against the insurgent forces, that especially the army at and about Fortress Monroe, the army of the Potomac, the army of Western Virginia, the army near Munfordville, Kentucky, the army and flotilla at Cairo, and a naval force in the Gulf of Mexico be ready to move on that day. That all other forces, both land and naval, with their respective commanders, obey existing orders for the time and be ready to obey additional orders when duly given. That the heads of departments, and especially the secretaries of war and of the navy, with all their subordinates, and the general-in-chief, with all other commanders and subordinates of land and naval forces, will severally be held to their strict and full responsibilities for prompt execution of this order. Abraham Lincoln General Order Number 1, issued January 27, 1862. In April of 1862, in southwestern Tennessee, a Union army of approximately 60,000 men under the command of Ulysses Grant would be attacked by a Confederate force about two-thirds as large. And when the smoke cleared after two days of furious fighting, nearly 3,500 men would be killed and over 16,000 would be wounded, counting both sides. This was over four times the death toll and eight times the number wounded at the first Battle of Bull Run the previous summer. It would be the bloodiest battle in the war up until that time. Ironically, the battle would go down in history named after a small, simple Methodist church built of logs that stood close to where the initial Confederate assault took place. It's ironic because the church bore a name that translates from the Hebrew as place of peace. The church was called Shiloh. Only about five months after that, in September, the bloodiest day of the war and in all of American history would take place in Maryland. 
When the smoke cleared on that battlefield, the casualty figures would be pretty comparable to Shiloh, but they had taken place over the course of a single day, rather than the two days of fighting that took place near Shiloh. This battle in Maryland is sometimes referred to as Sharpsburg, which is the name of the nearest town to where much of the fighting took place, but it's more commonly known today by the name of a creek that runs through the battlefield, Antietam. In America, over the course of 1862, the blood was flowing faster and at a seemingly exponentially increasing rate. This is your humble hazardous history host, CJ, here, back with another, hopefully, enlightening and entertaining salvo in the Dangerous History Podcast coverage of the Not-So-Civil War. This is episode 132 of the DHP, Upping the Ante, the Not-So-Civil War Part 2. First off, just let me say I'm sorry it's taken so long to get this one out following up the first installment in this series. And I've been hard at work. I haven't been sitting on my hands since the last one. I've been slaving away doing research and show prep and so on. But my reasons for the delay were as follows. Number one, it actually has been the beginning of spring semester classes for me since I made the last episode. And it's been especially busy for a variety of reasons. Things going on at work that I won't mention here. Things that normally are done closer to the middle of the semester that they asked me to do towards the beginning. So anyway, I've had less spare time even than usual over the past week. And I've been just trying to squeeze in as much work on making this episode as I could, when I could. And the second reason it took me longer than I expected to put this episode together is that this episode ended up being another extra-large, plus-sized, voluptuous DHP episode in terms of the amount of research and preparation I put into it. But despite the delay, I hope you'll enjoy this installment and that it'll it'll, um, reward your patience. And I hope to try in future episodes in this series to try and focus them more tightly so that I can put out episodes more regularly, but maybe not quite as long of episodes if you get what I'm saying. But before I jump into the rest of this episode, which will be covering major military developments through September of 1862, I have a bunch of thank yous to say. First, a bunch of Patreon shoutouts to a whole bunch of awesome individuals who have stepped up to support this show over at patreon.com slash profcj. And in particular, it's been a good couple of weeks for signups in general, but especially for people named Brian and people named Bob. So... Signing up as Patreon supporters of this show since my last episode are Israel, Clint, Brian, Mike, Another Brian, Chris, Will, Eamon, Justin, Alex, Dylan, John, Joe, Andrew, Danny, Dude Abides, and I've got to say it's nice to have the hero from The Big Lebowski on board as a supporter. Also, yet another Brian, Chubba, and thank you Chubba for emailing me to let me know how to pronounce your name. It's a Hungarian name. Thanks for the assist. I'm sure I probably would have butchered it horribly without that help. And also thanks to Bob and thanks to another Bob. So I think that's three Brians and two Bobs. So anyway, long list of awesome people. Thank you all very much. I really appreciate your support and couldn't keep doing this like I'm doing without it. And to those of you listening, if you're not already a Patreon supporter of this show, I hope you'll consider doing so for a pledge of $1 per episode or more. You'll have access to special bonus Dangerous History podcast episodes that are in Patreon and available nowhere else. And in addition to that, you'll be eligible to join the special private Facebook group just for Patreon supporters of this show. 
And to several of you who've asked over the last week or two, yes, I am planning on putting the bonus episodes on the special Patreon feed feature. Um, It's a relatively new feature of Patreon, and I just haven't gotten around to doing it yet, and I've been so busy on this episode, I've not done it yet as of this recording, but it is something I plan on getting up and running in the near future, and it'll just make it a little bit more easy for people to listen to the Patreon bonus episodes on podcatchers and things like that. Also have some thank yous to say for a few things I received in the past few weeks from my Amazon wishlist. Thanks for Rich for getting me against our better judgment by Allison Weir on Kindle. And thanks to someone it arrived without a note, so I'm not sure who specifically. But thanks to someone for getting me the book Democracy's Blameless Leaders by Neil James Mitchell. It looks like a very interesting book. And even when I ever make it out of this whole Civil War thing alive, that, as well as for our better judgment, or sorry, against our better judgment for that matter, are definitely books I'm looking forward to reading. But right now I'm still buried up to my eyeballs in not-so-Civil War material. So anyway, here we go into Upping the Ante, the Not-So-Civil War Part 2. Now, before I launch into covering some of the key military campaigns and battles of the first three quarters of 1862, I want to give just a little bit of background on some of the key military commanders in this episode. And there's no way that I could, uh, within the constraints of time, go into great detail on all of them. So I've picked four, two Confederates and two Union commanders, and I think they're the four that are the most important to this part of the story. And some of you may be Civil War buffs and already know a lot of this stuff. Others of you may be not very well schooled in the Civil War. And of course, while most of my listeners are from the United States, a decent minority, certainly nothing to sneeze at, are from all over the world. So I won't necessarily assume that everybody listening is familiar with kind of just the basics of the Civil War and who's who. So I want to just talk briefly about the backgrounds of four of the guys that I think are the most important characters from this particular segment of the war that we're zeroing in on in this episode. So first, I'm going to go over a couple Confederates, then a couple of Union guys. And my first Confederate is Robert E. Lee, who lived from 1807 to 1870. So was in his 50s when this war happened, and as a result was one of the older Confederate generals who was actively leading troops in the field. Robert E. Lee graduated second in his class from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point in 1829. He spent a fair amount of his military career as an engineering officer, and that's not terribly surprising given that's a lot of what the U.S. military was up to at the time, that and occasionally fighting Indians was about it. And as a military engineer, he'd be in charge with building and maintaining fortifications, maybe roads in some cases, that kind of stuff. And as I think I mentioned last episode, West Point's curriculum was very heavy into that kind of stuff. They 
tended to cover more on things like military engineering than they did on things like strategy and tactics and actually like leading large troop formations into battle. But nonetheless, despite that curriculum, Lee would prove that he certainly had a knack for things like strategy and tactics. By the time of the Mexican-American War, which ran from 1846 to 1848, Lee began that war as a captain and then got a brevet promotion during the war to colonel, I believe. And he served in that war with distinction, earning a reputation for being not only competent, but being an energetic and aggressive yet intelligent officer. And he caught the attention of General Winfield Scott, under whom he served in the Veracruz operation in that war. Now, if you'll recall from last episode, it was Winfield Scott who, at the very, very beginning of this whole conflict, the Civil War, as it's often known, offered Lee command of all American forces, a job which Lee turned down. As we heard last episode, Lee, despite being a Virginian from an illustrious old-timey Virginia aristocracy-type family, and of course as a result owning some slaves, was not in favor of secession, but he ultimately went along with his state when it did secede after Fort Sumter. While commanding armies in the field, Lee would prove to be a gambler and a risk-taker, and sometimes this would pay off brilliantly, but other times it would end in disaster. And while the Union, with its far greater resources and manpower and wealth, the Union could keep bouncing back from stupid blunders and disasters and defeats, but the Confederacy simply did not have that margin for error. And so ultimately, Lee's going to make enough gambles that don't pay off, and the Confederacy can't keep replacing men and resources the way the Union can. Jeffrey Hummel, in his book, Emancipating Slaves and Slaving Free Men, writes of Lee's approach, quote, Strategically on the defensive, the commander of the Army of Northern Virginia, as Lee's army became known, consistently strove to assume the tactical offensive in battle. Lee was convinced that this offensive-defensive, as President Davis styled it, would enable the Confederacy to recover any territory lost temporarily to the enemy. In other words, Davis and Lee were relying not simply upon a conventional defense of the new nation's vast boundaries, but upon a conventional defense so geographically inflexible that it required immediate counterstrokes to prevent any prolonged Yankee incursions, end quote. This meant that Lee wanted to resist any Union incursions with massive conventional attacks, which would ultimately mean that Lee, by the end of the war, would be drawn into an attrition battle that he simply could not win, no matter how much tactical brilliance he showed, and no matter his men's morale, which of course, by the end of the war, with all the losses they had taken and all the horrible shortages of things like food and shelter and footwear they were enduring, the morale didn't hold up by then anymore either. But anyway, it'll take a while to get to that point, and Lee will win some brilliant victories before that starts to happen. The next Confederate general I want to mention a little bit about is Thomas Stonewall Jackson, who lived from 1824 to 1863, so yes, died right about in the middle of this war. Jackson was also a Virginian, and about a generation younger than Lee. He was only in his mid-30s when the war began. He graduated 17th in his class, which I think is in the top half, but obviously not at the very top, from West Point in 1846, and pretty much right away was sent into the war with Mexico. There he served with distinction and rose ultimately to the rank of major. 
1851, he resigned his commission in the army and went to teach artillery, tactics, and natural philosophy, quite a combination, at the Virginia Military Institute, which was a relatively new military college. There, Jackson was very unpopular among his cadets, other than as the butt of jokes. He was really kind of a dick and had no sense of humor. Interestingly, Jackson was present at the hanging of John Brown in 1859. He was there because he was leading a group of VMI cadets who were attending the hanging. As we heard last episode, he earned his nickname Stonewall for his performance at the Battle of Manassas. By October of 1861, after Bull Run, Jackson had been promoted to the rank of Major General in the Confederate Army, and in November was sent to take command of the Confederate forces in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. And there, as we'll see in the spring of 1862, Jackson would truly make himself a legend. He was known for his very cold and humorless manner, for his draconian discipline, for his extreme religious zealotry, and for many, many eccentricities. Just a few of those eccentricities that I'll mention here as examples, according to some sources at least, and I think this one's disputed, he constantly sucked on lemons. And then a few things that are, I think, not disputed. He believed that if he had pepper in his food, it would make his left leg ache. He thought that one of his arms was longer than the other, and he thought he had to hold that arm up to keep his body's circulation in balance. And so he would often be randomly holding up one of his arms. So just a few examples. This guy was crazy, but as somebody, I think maybe James McPherson said, he would in many ways prove to be crazy like a fox. In other words, he's kind of like the nutty genius of the Confederate Army at times. Another general, a man named Alexander Lawton, who served under Jackson during his Shenandoah Valley campaign, described him in the following terms, quote, He gave his orders rapidly and distinctly and rode away never allowing answer nor remonstrance. When you failed, you were apt to be put under arrest. When you reported the place taken, he said only, good. He had no sympathy with human infirmity. He classed all who were weak and weary, who fainted by the wayside as men wanting in patriotism. He was the true type of all great soldiers. The successful soldier of the world, he did not value human life where he had an object to accomplish. He could order men to their death as a matter of course, end quote. Jackson would be considered by many Southerners the most important Confederate hero of the war, perhaps second only to Robert E. Lee in that regard. However, he would not live out the war. He's ultimately going to be the victim of friendly fire at the Battle of Chancellorsville in 1863 and will die prior to reaching the age of 40. But that's a story for another day. Now, a couple of generals on the Union side that are very important to this episode. First is George McClellan, who lived from 1826 to 1885. A Pennsylvanian by birth, McClellan was even a little bit younger than Stonewall Jackson when the war broke out. He was sort of like the Doogie Hauser of the military. He had, I think, gone to West Point a little bit younger than most people typically did under some sort of a special exception or a waiver. And like Lee, his frequent opponent in this war, McClellan had also graduated second in his class at West Point, although in McClellan's case it was a generation later as he was in class of 1846, which again is the same class as Stonewall Jackson, even though McClellan was a few years younger than him. So McClellan actually slightly knew Jackson, and there are a few instances that show like he knew Jackson was a guy who knew what he was doing. 
But anyway, also like Robert E. Lee, McClellan had a long background as an engineering officer and served in the Mexican War, but those are about the end of the things that he had in common with Lee, other than the two were both generals in the Civil War. After the Mexican War, McClellan's duties included military engineering, instructing at West Point for a little while, and even going abroad to observe the Crimean War on behalf of the U.S. government in the 1850s. In 1857, he left the military and went to work in the private sector for a few different railroad companies and apparently did okay at that. And then once secession happened, he was in Ohio and quickly became a militia officer there and shortly thereafter returned to the U.S. Army as a major general. Early in the war, his star rose quickly when he conducted some successful and important but not terribly important and not very bloody operations in Kentucky and Western Virginia. And throughout his service as a Union Army commander, McClellan would do his best to conduct his operations with minimal impact on civilians. And in fact, as a Northern Democrat, McClellan was often very critical of Lincoln and was also fairly racist and protective of the institution of slavery, even more so than Lincoln was when he was operating in slave states, whether Union or Confederate slave states, during his period of command. McClellan really wanted to stick to the notions of kind of limited, civilized warfare, the sorts of notions that were prevalent in places like continental Europe in the 19th century, where two armies would fight each other while doing their best as much as possible to prevent harm to civilians and their property. Williamson Murray and Wayne Hesea, in their book A Savage War, which is a fairly recent military history of this conflict, acknowledge, as do most historians of this war, McClellan's excellence at training and organizing an army, as well as his shortcomings, which again, many historians recognize, on the battlefield. But then Murray and Sia add another criticism that's very interesting that I've not heard put this way elsewhere, but I think it makes sense. That of McClellan setting kind of the standards, the culture, and so on of the Army of the Potomac, which was the giant Union army that McClellan commanded. And those standards and the culture that McClellan set there remained pretty consistent throughout most of the rest of the war, even long after McClellan himself was removed from command. So Murray and Sia write that McClellan, quote, set about establishing a culture in the leadership of what was to become the Army of the Potomac that was to exercise a baleful influence on its performance throughout the war, end quote. And one clear pattern where you can see this, was that McClellan tended to select subordinate commanders who, like he himself, had a West Point background heavy on engineering. And McClellan and his subordinates ended up exhibiting, quote, caution, unwillingness to take risks, and preference to do things by the book, end quote. So, as a result, the Army of the Potomac, the biggest Union Army of the war and the main one in the East, would end up being very professional, well-trained, well-drilled, kind of good in the spit-and-polish sort of way of professional armies, well-equipped, very good at marching and formation and all that, but out on campaign, the army would be very slow-moving, it would rarely go on offensive even when it made total sense to do so, and when it did achieve a tactical victory in a battle, it would generally fail to follow up that victory sufficiently to make the victory really mean something in grand strategy terms. 
So this was very much in contrast to the style and the culture that emerged in the Western Union armies, where men like Ulysses Grant cut their teeth in this war, where there was more of a tendency to emphasize results, be aggressive, take risks, push the advantage when you had it, and less tendency to really stress the procedures, the by-the-book stuff, the spit and polish, and so on. McClellan when leading his army, was almost always extremely slow and meticulous in moving it around. Very cautious. He almost always thought he was outnumbered, which is hilarious now that we can have an accurate view of both sides. The complete opposite was pretty much always the case, and yet McClellan always had this inferiority complex. And some of the Confederate commanders understood this, and they would play to it on purpose to kind of psych McClellan out, or in some cases, if McClellan had a huge advantage the Confederates would put on sort of fake shows to make things look like they had a bigger army than they did to get McClellan, for example, to hesitate instead of attacking. Just to give you one example, when McClellan took over command of the Army of the Potomac in 1861, he believed the Confederates had about 150,000 soldiers mobilized in the field at that point, when in reality they had about 60,000 at most. And this tendency continued throughout the next year or so as McClellan led battles and campaigns against the Confederates. And like I said, pretty early on, the Confederates realized this tendency of McClellan, and they often cleverly used deception to play to his tendency to believe these inflated estimates. They would fake the number of men they had in various ways. They would even do things like take logs and kind of make it look like those logs were cannon and artillery pieces so that Union scouts would see them and report back, oh my gosh, the Confederates have a ton of artillery. And McClellan, of course, would believe it because it was the confirmation bias he was already kind of biased in favor of wanting to believe. So Robert E. Lee is probably most famous for kind of understanding McClellan's psychology and exploiting it, but a lot of other Confederate commanders did as well. McClellan would command the Army of the Potomac for about a year from the summer of 1861 through the late summer, early fall of 62, and was also simultaneously general-in-chief of all Union forces for some of that time as well. McClellan always had a difficult relationship with Lincoln, in part for political reasons, and McClellan was more than happy to shoot his mouth off that he really didn't think much of Lincoln. And Lincoln was always riding McClellan's back to try and make him go on offense, and McClellan was always coming up with excuses and so on. And so they had a very touchy relationship. And to me, it's not at all surprising McClellan eventually got fired. To me, what's more surprising is he got fired, then brought back again briefly, and then fired again. And what else is surprising is how long he even was a Union commander in the first place. After finally being removed for good by Lincoln in the fall of 1862, George McClellan would actually resurface as the Democratic Party's presidential candidate in 1864, where he'd, of course, lose to Slick Abe, his old boss. Years later, he would serve a term as governor of New Jersey. McClellan and his psychology is particularly important in this stage of the war because I think without it, the Confederates may very well have lost the war in the course of 1862. Had McClellan instead been a really decisive, aggressive Union commander who was willing to do whatever it took to move his army quickly and seize the initiative, I don't think the Confederates could have done as well as they did in 62. And the last Union commander I want to mention, or second one, last makes it sound like it was a huge list that I'm going over here, 
But the second Union commander I want to mention is, of course, Ulysses Grant, who's not going to become kind of a huge household name until a little bit later in the war. But this is when he really starts to make a name for himself and show himself as, in the early phases of the war, clearly the most effective Union general in the West. Ulysses Grant lived from 1822 to 1885 and was a native of Ohio. He was, like a lot of these Civil War generals, a junior officer in the Mexican War who demonstrated personal courage there, but kind of was otherwise in that war. And also previously, when he had been a student at West Point, really just kind of unremarkable. He almost was sort of like the the gray man you sometimes hear survivalists talk about. The guy who just kind of is low-key and nondescript. He had a reputation as being sort of quiet and unobtrusive, and he graduated almost right exactly at the middle of his class, in the class of 1843. After his service in the Mexican War, he remained in the U.S. Army until 1854, when he resigned and returned to private life, and always had trouble there, I don't think was particularly successful, had money problems, that sort of thing. After Fort Sumter, he returned to the military and was pretty quickly made a brigadier general in the Western theater of the war, and he began his military service as part of the Union Army at Cairo, Illinois, which is the point from which really the Union Army launched its operations down into the Mississippi Valley area of the Confederacy. So he was one of the main guys involved in all the Union operations to seize the Mississippi River and its major tributaries. It would be in this Western theater of the war that Grant would first start to make a name for himself as a capable commander and would really start to stand out, not because he was a drama queen, but because he got results when other people didn't. He once said, quote, the art of war is simple enough. Find out where your enemy is, get at him as soon as you can and strike him as hard as you can and keep moving on, end quote. This is quite a contrast to McClellan's very cautious plotting approach. Now, due to his successes out west, in March 1864, much later in the war, Grant would be promoted to lieutenant general and commander of all Union forces. And it would be Grant who would command the final brutal battles of attrition that finished off Lee's Army of Northern Virginia by early 1865. After the war, Grant would serve two terms as president of the United States. He was a Republican, and he served from 1869 to 1877. His presidency is usually considered pretty bad, with a lot of scandals and problems in his administration. So a case of great general, just, you know, by the standards of accomplishing what he wanted to accomplish, but often considered a pretty useless president. And this is one of those rare cases where I kind of think the conventional wisdom is right. Now, other generals and important military figures I'll mention in passing as we go, maybe giving a little bit about each where it's relevant, but these are the most important four, and two of them, Lee and Grant, that I mentioned, are going to serve until the bitter end, of course. Like I said, Jackson will get killed partway through the war, and McClellan will get fired. Okay, so the rest of this episode is going to be the story of four campaigns that unfolded over the course of the spring, summer, and into the kind of late summer, early fall of 1862. And the first one I'm going to talk about is the Union campaign out west to seize control of the Mississippi watershed system in the western theater of the war, which was still ongoing into 1863, but a lot of the most important things had been sealed up over the course of 1862. 
And then I'm also going to talk a little bit about Stonewall Jackson's Shenandoah Valley campaign in the spring of 1862. I'm going to talk about George McClellan's Peninsula campaign in eastern Virginia. And then after that, I'm going to talk about the Confederate invasion of Maryland, which culminated in the Battle of Antietam. And Antietam is where we'll wrap this episode up. So first, the Union's Mississippi River Campaign. West, the Confederates generally had fewer competent military commanders than they had in the East, and those commanders had even far fewer resources out West than did the armies of the Confederacy in the East, spread over a very vast, far-flung territory. So you've got, on the Confederate side in the West, mostly commanders who aren't that good. You have not nearly as much manpower as in the East, which was always at a disadvantage in the East anyway, right? So even more outnumbered. And then you have huge distances and territories. So it's not surprising that the Union eventually won out West. What's surprising to me is that it took so long, and I think part of the reason is that even on the Union side out West, most of the commanders weren't very good either. And the only one that's going to prove to be really effective in these stages of the war is going to be Grant. The Union had a lot of advantages out west. Because the Mississippi River and most of its major tributaries run from north to south out there, this gave the Union a huge advantage in invading, because not only did they have much more maritime power, which included kind of brown water forces, riverboats, in addition to the blue water or ocean forces, but they'd even mostly be attacking downstream as they came. Also, while in the eastern part of the war, the sort of offensive-defensive-defend-everything approach at least worked for a while, in the west it never worked very well at all, in part because of the greater distances and logistical problems and the even greater shortage of Confederate manpower in the western armies. A lot of historians have said the Confederate government simply devoted too many of its resources to the East and not enough to the West, and this left them very vulnerable along the crucial superhighway of the region, which is the Mississippi watershed. Historians Murray and Sia, in their book A Savage War, which is a very recent, I believe, 2016 military history of this conflict, and it's pretty good as a detailed military kind of operational history. It's got some nationalistic, neoconish, Lincoln idolatry type stuff and whatnot in it, but dealing with just the nuts and bolts of military operational history, it's very good. In that book, the authors argue that While the war in the East has always, at the time and ever since, tended to hog the spotlight, it was the Union successes in the West, some of which occurred pretty early in the war, that were actually more important in the big picture in affecting the war's ultimate outcome. They write, quote, While the political and strategic focus of the opposing sides remained largely on the Eastern theater throughout 1862, 
Union forces in the West were to win victories that laid the foundation for the North's victory, end quote. One of the few things that General John Fremont did during his brief period as Union commander of the West prior to Lincoln firing him, that had a lasting impact on the war, was he authorized the creation of a fleet of Union gunboats to use in the Union Army's seizure of the Mississippi watershed. The boats that emerged from this project were called city-class gunboats, or sometimes called city-class ironclads because they were armored, and they were also sometimes referred to as pook turtles or Eads gunboats after the two men who developed them, who were James Eads and Samuel Pook. These boats were kind of weird looking. They were 175 feet long, and they had a 50-foot beam and were heavily armored and had sides that were angled to deflect enemy fire. Murray and Sia do a great job emphasizing the importance of these kind of humble little river gunboats. Quote, Despite their considerable weight, they drew only six feet and were astonishingly maneuverable for their size. In other words, they were the perfect vessels to fight for and control the western rivers. By November 1861, less than four months after he had received the contract, Eads and his workmen had produced a fleet of eight armored gunboats, with more on the way. The production and manning of the North's gunboats in the Midwest underlines the immense superiority the North enjoyed in manufacturing strength as well as the ingenuity and competence of its engineers. The Confederates, lacking the resources and perhaps more important, the imagination, had nothing comparable, end quote. And it wasn't just in the men who designed and built these sorts of things that the Union had a huge advantage, but also in the men to crew the boats and maintain them. Quote, Here, the advantage the North possessed in its workforce of grubby mechanics, so derided by the Confederates, again worked to its advantage. End quote. Initially, these gunboats began their service as the U.S. Army's Western Gunboat Flotilla, but they were shortly transferred to the Navy, under whom they would be commanded and known as the Mississippi River Squadron, although interestingly, most of the crewmen on the ships would remain Army men throughout the war, but they'd be commanded by Navy men. In the West, along all the river networks, joint Army-Navy operations became common, and Grant would develop a very positive relationship with Flag Officer Andrew Foote, who commanded the River Squadron. Moving men and supplies by river was generally better in every way, including efficiency and security, even than the railroads, which consumed greater resources for the same amount of freight, moved the same distance, and which, of course, were always vulnerable to attack, to sabotage. By contrast, it was relatively easy to find an unguarded stretch of a railroad and disable it, damage it, and then the whole railroad is out of action till someone can fix it. And it requires the army defending the railroad track to use up a ton of soldiers protecting the track. But rivers aren't the same. You know, the Confederates could attack a Union boat, but they couldn't disable the river itself as a whole. Out in the West, Grant, who was at the start of this whole thing a brigadier general, was initially under the command of Major General Henry Halleck, who was known as being kind of a, a military intellectual, and who seems to have had some amount of talent as an organizer and logistics man, but who never really distinguished himself in battle. And really, it seems like a lot of Grant's victories in the West were more in spite of Halleck than because of him, and he and Grant never got along well. And the historical record of things like the, the telegraph messages between the two guys and whatever bears this out. 
Historian Kendall Gott describes Henry Halleck as follows, quote, Although he had impressive credentials, Henry Halleck was not an easy man to work for. The nature of his job and his personality often provoked antagonism, hatred, and contempt. Halleck's strengths were organizing, coordinating, planning, and managing. He could also advise and suggest, and he sometimes ordered subordinates where and when to make a move, but he never was comfortable doing it himself. Halleck seldom worked openly, and as a department commander, he was always at headquarters, separated and aloof from his men. His decisions were the result of neither snap judgments nor friendly discussion, but calculated thinking. He was also prone to violent hatred and never cultivated close relationships. Overall, he generated no love, confidence, or respect, end quote. The best I think that could be said of Halleck in the West is that he didn't hobble Grant's efforts to get stuff done too much, though he did hobble him a bit from time to time. The first Confederate commander of Western forces was a man named General Albert Sidney Johnson, a fiery aggressive Texan, whose strategic vision was to try to defend everything, and in so doing he'd prove unable to really defend anything very well. Johnson would die not long into the war at the Battle of Shiloh, and some Southerners would claim it as a great loss, on a par with the way that they later portrayed the loss of Stonewall Jackson, and they would say all kinds of oh-if-onlys about the war, if only Albert Sidney Johnson had been killed so early, etc. But my opinion is, the fact of the matter is that he just hadn't been a very successful commander prior to his death anyway. Grant very early understood that there were a lot of Confederate forts along some of these rivers in kind of the area of western Kentucky, western Tennessee, northern Mississippi, eastern Missouri, like that whole kind of region where all those different rivers start to come together. Grant realized, number one, what a key strategic piece of real estate that area was, and particularly those waterways, and B, that a lot of the Confederate forts along those rivers were in bad shape. They weren't very well built and maintained. They weren't heavily garrisoned, etc., etc. They were very vulnerable. And so when Grant and some of the river squadron guys got some information about some of these forts, they realized they needed to move quickly so that they didn't miss their opportunity and maybe these forts would get upgraded or get bigger garrisons or whatever. So they discovered that Fort Henry on the Tennessee River and Fort Donelson on the Cumberland River were in a bad shape and very vulnerable, and Grant asked General Halleck for permission to seize them, and Halleck actually surprised Grant by saying yes, already the two guys didn't have a good relationship. So in February, on February 6th to be precise, 1862, Grant's forces seized Fort Henry in Tennessee with very few losses. And this win allowed Union control of the Tennessee River and paved the way for all of the future Union operations in this region along these waterways. Murray and CSA of this battle, which I don't think got enough attention at the time when it happened, quote, Its strategic effect represented a deadly stroke, perhaps the deadliest of the war. The loss of Henry represented a disaster of the greatest magnitude to Johnston's strategy of holding Union forces north of the Tennessee state line, end quote. Shortly thereafter, Grant moved on Fort Donelson, and after almost a week of siege, Grant was able to take the fort, which was also in Tennessee, and this gave the Union control of the Cumberland River. 
This was a more costly win for the Union than Henry had been, and it cost them almost 3,000 casualties, counting killed and wounded, but it hurt the Confederates far worse. Over 300 killed, over 1,000 wounded, and over 12,000 captured when the fort surrendered. By the way, this was the battle where Grant got the nickname Unconditional Surrender when in response to an offer by the Confederate commander of Fort Donelson, who had previously been a classmate of Grant's at West Point, to negotiate the surrender of the fort, in response to that, Grant responded with a note that said, quote, No terms except unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works, end quote. The city of Nashville fell to Union hands shortly after the fall of Fort Donelson, and the seizure of this region was really important, not just in terms of opening the way for future operations, but by seizing much of Tennessee, especially western Tennessee, they were seizing an area that was a major source of supply for the Confederacy of two important resources in war, iron ore and pork, a lot of the rations going to feed the troops. General Halleck made sure he got most of the credit from Washington for the victories that were happening out west so far, and it would only be later that everyone, including Lincoln, began to realize that Grant really deserved most of the credit for what had been happening out west, and that he'd won these victories in most cases in spite of, rather than because of, General Halleck. Halleck always had a dislike of Grant. At least in part, this was actually due to the fact that a Confederate sympathizer who was involved in running the telegraph between Grant and Halleck was often intercepting and dumping Grant's reports that Halleck never received them. And this gave Halleck the impression that, you know, Grant was ignoring him and was being negligent in reporting as often as he was supposed to, etc., and Halleck at one point even tried to get Grant fired by accusing him of drinking on the job, because Grant had had drinking problems previously, although at this point I don't think he actually was back to drinking. But Halleck was just saying this sort of thing to try and give Lincoln an excuse to fire Grant. But Lincoln was already starting to realize that Grant was one of the few military commanders he'd found so far who kind of got stuff done. Now, after the fall of Donelson... The Confederates in the West knew that Grant's next move would undoubtedly be down into northern Mississippi, and next stop would probably be the city of Corinth, which, among other things, was an important railroad hub. So the Confederates began massing together forces from the region for a big counterattack. As they would do in the East, they used their home court advantage and their interior lines to be able to do this, so that by early April, they'd have a force of over 40,000 men massed together to strike at Grant's forces. This had the side effect, by the way, of leaving the Gulf Coast of the Confederacy undefended, for the most part, of, of infantry, which the Union could exploit in naval operations down there. And this massing of Confederate forces would culminate on April 6th and 7th of 1862, in the battle that became known as Shiloh. Grant's forces were encamped, waiting at a place called Pittsburgh Landing, near the Tennessee River, and they were waiting for Union General Don Carlos Buell's army to show up to reinforce Grant, and from there they did plan to invade the state of Mississippi. Grant really wasn't expecting any trouble. As Murray and Sia put it, quote, 
As the Union commanders were confident the Confederates would not attack, they failed to properly fortify their positions. In other words, they deployed as if they were on peacetime maneuvers, rather than deep in Confederate territory with an army numbering at least 25,000 men, if not more, a mere 20 miles distant, end quote. The main thing that saved Grant's army from disaster was probably that the Confederates were at least equally as bumbling and amateurish in their preparations and carrying out of their attack. Confederate Commander Albert Sidney Johnston and his second-in-command, who at the time was General P.T. Beauregard of Bull Run fame, if you'll recall from the last episode, they knew they'd have to try to crush Grant's army before Buell's army showed up to reinforce him, so they'd have to move quickly. In other words, they needed speed and stealth. But unfortunately for their plans, their army was not able to deliver on speed and stealth. Due to logistical and organizational problems, the army moved towards Pittsburgh landing much slower than they intended, so that Buell's forces were actually close to Grant by the time the Confederates were getting ready to attack. In addition, while they were marching, many Confederate soldiers test-fired their muskets, which they'd been rained on recently and they were worried their powder might not work, and this test-firing of muskets tipped off the Union they were coming, or at least should have. Now, at a council of war on the night of April 5th, when the Confederates were finally within striking distance of Grant's army, General Beauregard argued against carrying out an attack the next day, saying they'd completely lost the element of surprise and would be better off returning back to Corinth, Mississippi. Beauregard had supported attacking if his side had the numerical advantage and the element of surprise, but now that it seemed like they'd probably lost both of those advantages, he really thought it was a bad idea to attack anyway. He said, quote, In the struggle tomorrow, we shall be fighting men of our own blood, Western men, who understand the use of firearms. The struggle will be a desperate one. End quote. But Johnston and the other Confederate generals there overruled him and decided they'd attack at dawn anyway. Johnston said a whole bunch of confident, dramatic, histrionic things, such as, Remember the dependence of your mothers, your wives, your sisters, and your children on the result. With such incentives to brave deeds, your generals will lead you confidently to the combat. I would fight them if they were a million. Gentlemen, we shall attack at daylight tomorrow. Johnson also boasted that they would water their horses in the Tennessee River the next day. Perhaps surprisingly, given all the noise they'd made in their approach, the Confederate attack at dawn still apparently took the Union Army by surprise. The heart of the battle unfolded over a front that spanned about three miles and was bounded on either side by a creek. Both armies in this battle were composed mostly of very, very green soldiers. As at Bull Run, not long into the battle, both sides had a tendency to lose any sense of cohesion and organization and discipline and sticking to the plan. And if you've ever watched Leroy Jenkins, you know what happens. Once Leroy Jenkins goes in, despite everyone shouting, stick to the plan, things just kind of turn into a big chaotic mess. So you end up with a fair amount of somewhat chaotic, ill-organized, nasty firefights. The most brutal fighting took place in the center, where Confederate forces repeatedly attacked, and after putting up some initial resistance, the Union forces there began falling back, and most didn't stop until they reached the banks of the Tennessee River. Once they got there, their backs were to the proverbial wall, they had nowhere to go, and Grant ordered his men to hold. 
A bunch of Iowa and Illinois soldiers held a key spot defending a sunken road from Confederate attacks, and Grant ordered those men to hold that key position at all costs. The Union troops there had a clear field of fire to defend against attacks. About 4,500 Union soldiers defended this sunken road against about 18,000 Confederate attackers. The Confederates attacked this spot a dozen times. General Johnston himself led the last assault, and during it he was hit in the leg, and it apparently clipped his femoral artery, and he ended up bleeding to death very quickly. P.T. Beauregard, who had been Johnston's second-in-command, was now in command. The Hornet's Nest, as this spot where this nasty fighting took place in and around this sunken road, wasn't taken by the Confederates until three things happened. First, the Union defenders there ran out of ammo. Second, the Confederates pretty much surrounded them. And third, Beauregard concentrated 62 artillery pieces on the spot. And at that point, the remaining 2,000 or so survivors surrendered. But their stand and the fight they put up there had allowed the rest of Grant's army to retreat to the river. By the time evening fell on April 6, and very few operations, by the way, happen at night in this war, it tends to not end well because of the technological state of things. You can't do anything but very small-scale little raids and things. So anyway, nighttime, long story short, nighttime operations in this war are very rare. By the time evening fell, the Union forces were pretty much pinned against the river. The last Confederate attack of the night was stopped by a combination of Grant's artillery and the artillery of Union gunboats in the river. Beauregard was confident they'd finish off what was left in the morning. As night fell, rain began to fall as well, and a thunderstorm illuminated an absolutely apocalyptic scene, with thousands of dead and wounded from both sides just strewn all about the field. Neither side was remotely prepared at this point in the war to deal with the logistics, the physical task of dealing with this amount of dead and wounded people, and were told that over the night, hogs feasted on some of the corpses. And one can only imagine if anyone who was maybe not quite dead might have been a victim of a hog as well. One Confederate soldier who experienced this battle later wrote, quote, Men were lying in every conceivable position, the dead lying with their eyes wide open, the wounded begging piteously for help, end quote. And a Union veteran of this battle wrote, quote, Their groans and cries were heartrending. The gory corpses laying all about us in every imaginable attitude and slain by an inconceivable variety of wounds were shocking to behold. End quote. And historian James McPherson in Battle Cry of Freedom describes the scene in these words quote, Soldiers on both sides passed a miserable night. Rain began falling and soon came down in torrents on the 95,000 living and 2,000 dead men scattered over 12 square miles from Pittsburgh Landing back to Shiloh Church. 10,000 of the living were wounded, many of them lying in agony amid the downpour. Lightning and thunder alternated with the explosions of shells lobbed by the gunboats all night long into Confederate bivouacs. Despite their exhaustion, few soldiers slept. End quote. And just imagine, in this battle, as in so many more giant bloodbaths that are to come, imagine the sensory assault these men who went through this must have gone through. Simply the sensory overload and just horrors of the sights, the sounds, 
the smells. Even if you're one lucky enough to get through a battle like Shiloh, physically intact and alive, the trauma that going through all of this must inflict upon you. During the night, Union General William Tecumseh Sherman, who was one of Grant's subordinates at the time, said something to Grant about they had a rough day. But Grant just said something back to the effect of, yeah, but we'll lick him tomorrow. Over the course of the night, General Buell's forces arrived and reinforced Grant, and soon the Union forces outnumbered the Confederates approximately 70,000 to 30,000. And the Union launched a series of counterattacks starting early in the morning that surprised the Confederates and drove them from the field. But the Union troops were too battered and exhausted to pursue very effectively. As had been the case for the Confederates at Bull Run, and as would be the case again and again in this war, the side that quote-unquote won a battle was often unable to follow up and exploit its victory, in part due to lack of effective planning for a follow-up, but also in part due to the reality of how often even the side that won a battle would be so damaged and exhausted and used up from the fight that they were pretty well spent. Total casualties counting together dead, wounded, missing, and captured from these two days of fighting that would become known to history as the Battle of Shiloh were over 23,000, which, believe it or not, was more than all the casualties in all previous American wars combined together. Even though it was a Union victory, interestingly, much Northern public opinion, including many newspapers, seemed to have taken it almost as a defeat due to the astonishingly high casualties. On the Confederate side, a lot of Southern public opinion seems to have blamed Beauregard, rather than Johnston, for the Confederacy's defeat there. Ulysses Grant wrote years later in his memoirs, quote, Up to the Battle of Shiloh, I, as well as thousands of other citizens, believed that the rebellion against the government would collapse suddenly and soon if a decisive victory could be gained over any of its armies. Donaldson and Henry were such victories. The Tennessee and Cumberland rivers, from their mouths to the head of navigation, were secured. But when the Confederate armies were collected, which not only attempted to hold the line further south, but assumed the offensive and made such a gallant effort to regain what had been lost, then, indeed, I gave up all idea of saving the Union, except by complete conquest. End quote. Complete conquest. Total war total submission. That's where it's going. Historian James McPherson agrees and writes in his book Battle Cry of Freedom, quote, Shiloh launched the country onto the flood tide of total war, end quote. After Shiloh, Halleck took command of Union forces at Pittsburgh Landing and massed other armies in together, constructing a force of about 100,000 men, which really could have overwhelmed the Confederates in Corinth, Mississippi, which is where the Confederates had retreated to. But Halleck was so slow that he lost his chance. Massing these forces together and then preparing them and then moving super slowly towards Corinth took him almost a month, and it was a journey that should have taken several days at most. Beauregard simply pulled the Confederate forces out of Corinth before the Union Army arrived. Shortly thereafter, having assembled this huge army, General Halleck then broke it up into a bunch of smaller pieces and scattered it to a bunch of minor operations, thereby failing to effectively follow up the Union victory at Shiloh and failing to do anything decisive with this giant force he had massed together. 
On June 6, 1862, Union forces took the city of Memphis, and after this victory, the Union would have control of the Mississippi River and its major tributaries in the region pretty well sewn up except for one thing, Vicksburg, Mississippi. The Union Navy, as we'll probably mention later, had moved in on New Orleans by that time, and it was Vicksburg, Mississippi, which had bluffs, overlooking the river that were heavily fortified by the Confederates that would be a problem for the Union for more than another year. But by summer of 1862, the Union operations in the West would bog down for a while, in part because many of the other commanders out there weren't as competent and energetic as Grant, in part because even Grant had a tough time dealing with the defenses of Vicksburg, and in part because a lot of the Confederate resistance in the theater increasingly began to take the form of irregular or unconventional warfare, which proved a nightmare for Union armies to deal with, especially things like trying to protect rail lines from sabotage and destruction. Even though some of this unconventional warfare proved surprisingly effective with small numbers of troops, for example, Grant's first attempt to take Vicksburg, with a force of 75,000 men in December of 1862, would ultimately fail, largely due to the efforts of a few thousand Confederate cavalry and partisans, which hit their logistical lines. But even though these irregular operations proved effective in many cases, the Confederate government and military high command simply never put much in the way of thought or resources into fighting a more unconventional war. And as a result, over the course of the next year, Vicksburg would be the centerpiece, the linchpin of the war in the Mississippi Valley. The next military campaign I'm going to talk about is Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign. Things looked bad for the Confederacy in the spring of 1862. The Union was winning key victories in the West, and in the East, General George McClellan's massive army was grinding slowly but seemingly inexorably toward Richmond from the Virginia Peninsula, a campaign that we'll cover later in this episode. In this atmosphere... Thomas Stonewall Jackson would lead a Confederate army of about 17,000 men in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia against three Union armies, each of which at their peak had more men than Jackson did in total, and he would triumph. Jackson's army would march close to 650 miles in about a month and a half, win a bunch of small but important battles, capture a ton of Union supplies and perhaps most importantly at the time, prevent the Union forces that were in the Valley from being shifted over to Washington, D.C. or to the Peninsula Campaign to add to McClellan's army. The Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, situated between the Blue Ridge and Allegheny Mountains, was a key piece of strategic geography during this war. 
prior to the war, it was a very prosperous and developed agricultural region known for producing large amounts of very important food crops, including grain, and also being one of the most productive horse-producing areas in the Confederacy. And it also contained some of the South's few factories. It also contained important railroads of the region and offered the Union an invasion route into the central and western parts of Virginia. And conversely, it could also be used by the Confederates as an invasion route into Maryland and Pennsylvania. Jackson took command of the Confederate forces in the Valley late in 1861 and found that he had very few forces to begin with, and so he managed to get some other troops shifted from other places into his command. In early 1862, George McClellan ordered Union General Nathaniel Banks, who was commanding one of the Union forces in the region, to cross the Potomac into Confederate territory in order to protect the railroad from Confederate cavalry attacks. The Union forces closed in on the town of Winchester, which is where Jackson's army was at the time, but Jackson got his forces out before the Yankees arrived to occupy the town on March 12. Some of Banks' army started getting recalled to help defend Washington, D.C., and Banks himself was making plans to leave the valley to reinforce D.C. and ultimately to help McClellan's invasion of eastern Virginia. Jackson, for his part, had been ordered to prevent Banks' army from leaving the valley, so he decided to launch an attack on the federal forces at Kernstown so that basically he could try to keep as many Union troops tied down in the valley as possible to prevent them from being used elsewhere. So the first real battle of this valley campaign took place on March 23rd at Kernstown, and Jackson's intelligence ended up being faulty. He thought he was attacking a small Union force. His preferred way of operating in this campaign was to always try to attack small, isolated, or exposed parts of the enemy's larger armies. And so even though there were far more Union troops than Confederate troops in the valley, for most of this campaign, Jackson was very good at making sure that he actually had more men at the spot of battle when it happened. It's an idea of kind of defeating a larger enemy in detail, attacking small pieces one at a time. But in this case, he had faulty information, and he was actually attacking a force that greatly outnumbered his own. And after some nasty fighting, Jackson did the prudent thing and pulled back. And the Federals didn't pursue sufficiently quickly and aggressively to stop them from getting out. The Confederates had suffered 700 casualties in this battle to the Union's 500. Jackson had Confederate General Richard Garnett court-martialed for ordering his men to retreat before he'd officially been given permission to do so. And I can't remember exactly, I think Garnett was demoted and maybe removed from his command for a while. Eventually he came back, but he kind of always felt like he had this stain upon his honor from having been court-martialed by Jackson. And Jackson was very court-martial happy. He would have people court-martialed over just about anything, big or small. By the way, General Garnett would later be killed at Gettysburg trying to regain his honor as part of Pickett's charge. This Battle of Kernstown was Jackson's only tactical defeat of this entire campaign, but even in a way it was a strategic Confederate victory because it did cause Lincoln to shift more troops from McClellan's army in the east to reinforce Union troops in the valley. 
Jackson's army retreated up the valley, which when you're talking about the Shenandoah Valley, up doesn't mean north. Up means to higher elevation, which actually means you're kind of moving southwestward. The, the valley runs from southwest to northeast kind of diagonally on the map, and as you move southwestward, you're actually moving up in elevation. And Banks's Union army slowly pursued. Jackson had a captain under his command named Jedediah Hotchkiss, who apparently had very good map-making skills, and he ordered Hotchkiss to make him a super-duper detailed map of the valley that ultimately would contain multiple pieces of parchment or felt or whatever they used combined together to stretch seven feet by three feet. An absolutely massive map and very detailed. And Jackson already knew the area pretty well. He had lived there previously. But armed with this enormous map and armed with knowledge and intelligence, not only from his own cavalry, but from the very friendly civilians, pro-Confederate civilians in the valley, Jackson made sure that he would never again in this campaign make the mistake of having faulty information. He always, from this point on, made sure he had a lot more and better and more accurate and detailed information than the enemy, because he understood knowledge is power. And when you've got a smaller, less well-equipped army fighting against larger, better-equipped ones, every little edge you can get in terms of information, knowledge, intelligence, knowledge of terrain, etc., is going to help. These maps, along with absolutely brutal forced marches, averaging over a dozen miles per day during this campaign, and sometimes in particular cases as high as 20 miles per day, very often with these men carrying, you know, 40, 50, 60 pounds of kit in their wool uniforms in spring and early summer in Virginia, marching 10, 12, 15, 20 miles a day. It's really kind of hard to wrap your head around, and as you might expect, these troops were often exhausted and tired, but somehow they did it. Now, could they have done this indefinitely rather than over the course of a month and a half? Perhaps not, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But these brutal, fast-forced marches enabled Jackson to move more quickly and always have more of the element of speed and surprise and being able to retreat before the enemy could mobilize effective counterattacks, and his men moved at speeds that previously people just didn't think infantry could do. And so his men got the nickname the Foot Cavalry because of how much ground they covered. And all of this helped Jackson win a series of battles with surprisingly light battlefield casualties on his side in a campaign that would go down in military history as a top-notch example of how a smaller force can use maneuver and speed and surprise to frustrate and defeat a larger force in detail. After his defeat at Kernstown, Jackson went on a winning streak and won a series of battles over various federal forces in the valley, including the Battle of McDowell on May 8th, the Battle of Front Royal on May 23rd, the Battle of Winchester on May 25th, the Battle of Cross Keys on June 8th, and the Battle of Port Republic on June 9th. Although Jackson's army was vastly outnumbered by the total number of Union troops in the valley, like I said, he was very good at being able to pick his battles, and more often than not, he actually had local numerical advantage when the battle went down, and he usually had the initiative of deciding which battles happened and didn't, when a battle started and when it ended, and so on, and so he was able to hold the initiative, and the Union armies in the valley were always kind of responding to what he did, and often ineffectively. 
And Jackson also proved very wise and prudent at deciding when and where to fight and when and where not to. So he was good at only fighting when he really held the high cards. And in this campaign, at least, he had no qualms with retreating when it made tactical and strategic sense to do so. Historians Herman Hathaway and Arthur Jones wrote of Jackson's Valley Campaign, quote, Always outnumbered seven to three, every time Jackson engaged, he fought with the odds of about four to three in his favor, because, moving rapidly on interior lines, he hit fractions of his enemy with the bulk of his own command. Jackson enjoyed the great advantage that the Northerners remained widely scattered on a perimeter within which his troops could maneuver to concentrate against first one and then another of the Union forces, end quote. And Jackson became the first really renowned military hero in the Southern mind, again, at a time when things had been going badly for many months for the Confederacy. He has this David versus Goliath campaign where... By fighting smarter, he's able to inflict humiliating defeats on larger armies and to really frustrate Union strategy. By June, encouraged by his success, Stonewall was starting to think about an offensive northward into Pennsylvania, but he didn't have the manpower to do it, and he asked for reinforcements, but they weren't available. And whether the reinforcements he wanted would have been sufficient for his plans. I mean, he was talking about invading up into Pennsylvania and, you know, doing all these things. But the problem was he didn't have the manpower at the time. Reinforcements weren't available from elsewhere. And in fact, right around the time Stonewall was dreaming these dreams of invading northward, Robert E. Lee would recall Jackson and his forces back towards Richmond in order to assist him against McClellan's army. In fact, when Jackson sent one of his colonels to present his plans to invade northward to Robert E. Lee, Lee supposedly replied in the polite way that he often spoke to people when ordering them or disagreeing with them. He replied, Don't you think General Jackson had better come down here first and help me to drive these troublesome people away from before Richmond? And when the colonel expressed disagreement and continued to support Jackson's plans to attack northward from the valley, Lee responded, I see that you appreciate General Jackson as highly as I myself do, and it is because of my appreciation of him that I wish to have him here. And in mid-June, Stonewall's army began its journey to the east. Combined with the successful Confederate counterattack later in the east against McClellan's army, which we'll get to next, Jackson's successes reignited Confederate morale. The newspapers were absolutely gushing about this genius hero. And... His campaign really did frustrate the Union's strategic plans for that spring and summer. Now, at first glance to many people, Jackson's campaign of maneuver, of using speed and surprise to beat small pieces of larger armies one by one, this appears to show a way that the Confederates could potentially have won the war. The problem, though, is you have to remember this campaign was conducted in a confined area, both in terms of geography and in terms of time span. Jackson's army was able to keep up the pace of movement and operations that they did, but just barely. And they were only able to do it for about a month and a half in a confined valley, you know, bounded by mountains on two sides. Whether the entire Confederate war effort could have been conducted in a similar manner for as long as it may have taken to win the war is a little more doubtful. While you hear about the victories Jackson won, the supplies he seized, etc., and while you hear accurately that he suffered relatively few battlefield killed and wounded during this, 
when you look at the overall cost borne by Jackson's army, you realize this probably wasn't a sustainable way to run the entire Confederate war effort. Because when one compares the casualties that Jackson's men suffered from the strains of the constant forced marches, it's actually right up there with the casualty rates of battle and may potentially have been higher, depending on how you crunch the numbers. Through speed and surprise, Jackson's foot cavalry were able to win battles with very light battlefield casualties, but they suffered losses due to illness, injury, and breakdown from hardship and exhaustion, as well as from straggling and desertion. I mean, you can't keep doing 10 to 20 mile marches almost every day with very little time to rest and short on supplies and everything and not have that destroy your men's health and morale and so on. And while Jackson would typically respond to things like straggling and desertion with draconian discipline, that can only get you so far and and sustain your men for so long as well. Letters from Jackson's men to their people back home and mail on both sides was uncensored during this war, interestingly. Letters from Jackson's men talk about the suffering, the hardship, the misery, how tired they are, etc., Historian Robert Tanner, in his very detailed book about this campaign, Stonewall in the Valley, writes, quote, Despite occasionally savage fighting, battle casualties for both brigades were a relatively small source of loss compared with other reasons. Taking the brigades together, non-battle losses drain 25 to 30 percent of available manpower, end quote. And when you combine those non-battle casualties with the actual battle casualties that did occur, Tanner argues that... Jackson's forces in this campaign actually experienced casualty rates of about 40%, which is actually much worse than what was usually experienced even in particularly bad large-scale battles elsewhere in the war. Here's Tanner again, quote, It is well to be reminded by Jackson's complete losses, complete losses, right, meaning not just the men lost in battle, complete losses of what Confederate officers would have understood full well relying on deception, surprise, and distraction to avoid a main force engagement might be more costly than the battle. A rebel army was a very dangerous place to be, whether on the march or on the battlefield, end quote. It just wouldn't have been a sustainable approach, in my opinion. I used to think that this is the secret way the Confederates, if they would have just done more of this quick-moving maneuver warfare, They could have won the war this way, but it wasn't sustainable in the long run. It could be done in particular times and places in compressed periods of time. But while it worked brilliantly in this campaign, you couldn't run a whole army that way and expect it to hold up very long. Historians Murray and Sia assess Jackson's Valley campaign as follows, quote, Jackson's campaign in the Valley has drawn the praises of military historians since the war's end. It was indeed a piece of tactical virtuosity, but its real impact was political and operational, end quote, by which they mean that it salvaged the Confederacy's morale and prevented Lincoln from being able to further reinforce McClellan, who was simultaneously operating in eastern Virginia, trying to get at Richmond. And that's the next place we'll turn.
Next, we turn to what is in logistical terms certainly one of the most impressive achievements of the war, the so-called Peninsula Campaign. After having taken about eight months to build and train the Army of the Potomac, George McClellan finally led them into Virginia. However, instead of going for simplicity and just sort of barreling straight from D.C. towards Richmond, as McDowell had been doing when Bull Run halted him in his tracks, McClellan decided on a more roundabout and indirect attack, and he decided he'd use the navy. And he decided that he used the Union's naval capacity to ferry his giant army down the Potomac River and through the Chesapeake Bay to Fortress Monroe, which was a Union-held facility, on the end of the Virginia Peninsula. And the plan was to march from there up the peninsula toward Richmond, approaching it from the southeast. Now, this peninsula is one of those fingers of land that juts out into the Chesapeake Bay. It's formed by the James and York Rivers on either side, and further up the peninsula, the Chickahominy River cuts through it before it dumps into the James River. On March 17th, McClellan's massive army of over 120,000 men and things like over 14,000 horses and mules and over 1,000 wagons and so on, this giant lumbering army began ferrying down to the peninsula. It would take a fleet of 400 boats about three weeks to complete this job. This war demonstrated a key facet of the American way of war, a thing that has characterized the American approach to war ever since. Really, really impressive logistical capabilities. Now, not always backed up by brilliant tactics and wise strategy, of course, but always very impressive on the logistics front, always very impressive on getting men and stuff to far-flung places just not always good at translating that into anything productive and good for people other than the military-industrial complex and the politicians. On April 4th, having finally assembled this gigantic force on the Virginia Peninsula, this massive army of George McClellan began lumbering toward Richmond, Commanding the Confederate forces that would be defending against this was a general named Joseph Johnston, who tended to be a competent, but by nature, a very defensive and cautious commander. At Yorktown, where almost a century earlier, Lord Cornwallis had surrendered to George Washington, about 11,000 Confederate defenders waited. And that means, you know, less than 10% the size of McClellan's approaching army. The Union Army was moving slowly due to a combination of bad roads, bad maps, and also the tendency of the Army of the Potomac's commanders, especially McClellan himself, to almost always be very, very cautious and hesitant and systematic in how they did things. And there's a famous anecdote where McClellan and a few of his generals were looking at a stream that was in their way, and they were talking and debating amongst themselves, gee whiz, how deep you think it is? Oh, I don't know. We better try to find out, blah, 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 blah. And a young junior officer named George Armstrong Custer, who was listening to this conversation, grew impatient and just rode his horse out into the middle of the stream and said, this is how deep it is, General. The commander of the Confederate forces at Yorktown was a man named General Magruder. I think his first name was John. But anyway, Magruder. And he was clever enough to realize the nature of this army and of McClellan that was approaching him. And he managed to make McClellan think that he had a vast amount of troops through deception. 
So he did things like marching a single battalion through a clearing a bunch of times in front of the Union Army so that they would think it was this giant army that's taken all day to pass. It was just the same battalion marching through again and again and again. He did other things like this, and it really was effective at making McClellan think that there was an army in his path that was at least as big as his own, when in fact it was less than 10% the size. Kind of calls to mind what Sun Tzu says, that when you're strong, make the enemy think you're weak. And when you're weak, make the enemy think you're strong. McClellan stopped and didn't march on Yorktown right away. He telegraphed Lincoln, saying that he was facing at least 100,000 Confederates and asked for reinforcements. And Lincoln said that there weren't any available. And the telegraph exchanges, the messages back and forth between Lincoln and McClellan are very interesting because McClellan's always saying, oh my God, I'm outnumbered. I need reinforcements, whatever. And Lincoln's always saying, we don't have any more. There's a whole rest of the war going on, and I think you just need to get off your ass and do something. And so there's this constant back and forth, and McClellan was very critical of Lincoln. Well, he doesn't know what I'm dealing with down here, and he doesn't understand military strategy. And Lincoln's feeling was like, you've got the giantest army ever. There's no way the Confederates have an army as big as that. Just get off your ass and do something. And so it reached a peak when Lincoln replied by really getting on McClellan's case, cabling to him, quote, Once more, let me tell you, it is, ind- it is indispensable to you that you strike such a blow. I am powerless to help this. I have never written you or spoken to you in greater kindness of feeling than now, nor with a fuller purpose to sustain you, so far as in my most anxious judgment I consistently can. But you must act, end quote. But instead of acting, McClellan decided to prepare to lay siege to what he thought was this vast Confederate army at Yorktown. In fact, his army would remain parked outside of Yorktown for almost a month, and during a majority of those days, it would be raining. Then in early May, when McClellan was finally planning an actual attack on Yorktown, Confederate artillery started firing at him first, and McClellan thought the Confederates were going to attack him. He prepared for a Confederate attack, and it never came. Instead, after giving McClellan pause with a little artillery barrage, the defenders of Yorktown had pulled back and retreated closer towards Richmond. So Confederate General Magruder had managed to hold off an army ten times the size of his own simply by bluff and deception and playing to McClellan's own personality quirks. McClellan, though, when finally taking the abandoned city of Yorktown, portrayed Yorktown as a massive victory for his army and resumed his very slow movement toward Richmond. He ultimately made it very close to the city. At his closest, he was only about six miles from the outskirts. We're told the Union Army could hear the clock bells and church bells of the city of Richmond. McClellan parked his army there, and of course cabled back to D.C. asking for more reinforcements, of which there were none, since he already had the largest army that had ever been seen in North America, and since the only troops that might have maybe been able to reinforce him at the time were either still defending Washington from a potential Confederate attack and also dealing with Stonewall Jackson in the Shenandoah Valley. As his army waited outside Richmond, the rains got worse, which of course didn't help morale and didn't help sickness. And throughout this war, Confederate and Union soldiers both are more likely to be killed by disease than by bullets or bayonets. The massive Army of the Potomac was separated into two parts by the Chickahominy River, which was flooding because of the rains. And using that opportunity, 
Joseph Johnston decided to launch a Confederate attack on the smaller portion of the army, and the battle unfolded from May 31st into June 1st and became known as the Battle of Seven Pines. Both sides took heavy losses in the battle without really significantly changing the overall situation. One of the most important things that happened during this battle was that General Joseph Johnston was himself severely wounded by artillery, and the much more aggressive General Robert E. Lee then was given command of this army, defending Richmond, which he soon rebranded the Army of Northern Virginia, and which would be his army through the rest of the war. And it was around this time that Lee sent word to Stonewall Jackson for Jackson to bring his army from the valley over to eastern Virginia to help him deal with McClellan. Really hilariously, in light of hindsight and what ends up happening, McClellan, when he first heard Lee was in command of the Confederate forces he faced, thought Lee would be an easy opponent to deal with. McClellan wrote, quote, I prefer Lee to Johnson. The former is too cautious and weak under grave responsibility. Personally brave and energetic to a fault, he yet is wanting in moral firmness when pressed by heavy responsibility and is likely to be timid and irresolute in action, end quote. And all I can say is, projection much? Lee was determined to try and kick McClellan out of Virginia, no matter what it took, and he also believed he might just be able to defeat McClellan's army in detail. But the first thing he did was send his cavalry commander Jeb Stewart to lead a cavalry raid around the massive Union army to harass them, confiscate supplies, gather intelligence, and so on. Lee himself, as Jackson's troops began arriving, was putting together, by Confederate standards, a large army and preparing for a big attack. But before Lee launched this big attack, McClellan, not for the last time, got a gift of intelligence manna from heaven that, also not for the last time, he failed to really capitalize on. McClellan was actually tipped off to the Confederate attack being prepared by a Confederate deserter that they captured, but for whatever reason, he chose to either not believe it or ignore it. And so Robert E. Lee's offensive is going to unfold from June 25th through July 1st, and it will go down in history as the Seven Days Battles. Some of the main battles were things like Mechanicsville, Gaines Mill, Savage's Station, Malvern Hill, and just looking at the Seven Days as a whole, what you find is, despite the fact that Lee's army was still, even with all these reinforcements he brought in, like Jackson's men, still much smaller than McClellan's, and yet he defied kind of the typical advice of military tacticians, which is he divided this army in two and went on offense. And the reason he did this was because he was pretty sure he understood McClellan's psychology, and he believed that by being very aggressive, he could kick McClellan out of Virginia, maybe even defeat his army in total. And all I can say is, by way of analogy, it's sort of like if you've ever seen a really pissed off and aggressive little dog attacking a much bigger but much less aggressive dog, and very often the little dog can win just by bluff and bluster and aggression. I can just remember one time growing up, I had a dog that was a Dachshund Chihuahua mix, not exactly a large or intimidating dog, and she was normally the sweetest, most timid little dog, but one time a neighbor's big old dog, some kind of Labrador or something, got into our backyard, and my little Chihuahua Dachshund went running out there full-on scrappy-doo with her hair standing up and goes, ah! 
And you should have seen the look on this big old Labrador's face. The dog was just like, I'm not doing this, and turned around and, and ran out. Now, over the course of the war, Lee's tendency to always want to go on offense wouldn't always pay off, but against McClellan, it usually did. Over the course of these seven days, Lee kept relentlessly attacking despite taking heavy losses, and McClellan kept pulling his forces back, despite the fact that they were often giving more than they were taking in terms of casualties. His men were often fighting pretty well. At a lot of these battles, the Union was suffering fewer killed and wounded than the Confederates, and yet McClellan's response was always pull back, pull back, pull back, ah, I'm outnumbered, I'm surrounded, that sort of thing. Finally, the Union stopped the Confederate attacks at a place called Malvern Hill with a close-range artillery barrage of 250 artillery guns. Confederate General D.H. Hill, who was leading the Confederate charge at Malvern Hill that ran into this artillery, called the result not war, it was murder. Now, Lee succeeded in driving McClellan away from Richmond and ultimately getting him to leave Virginia, but he failed in his plan to decisively defeat the Army of the Potomac in detail, in part because while McClellan and many other generals in that army were overly cautious and timid and prone to retreat, many of the actual rank-and-file men of the Army of the Potomac actually were brave and could fight, and they put up a good resistance. Lee also failed to fully achieve his goals here, in part because many of the coordinated, somewhat complex, multi-pronged attacks that he planned during the Seven Days campaign were just not executed properly due to errors of timing and communication, and in particular, Stonewall Jackson, who had made such a name for himself in the Valley, actually dropped the ball numerous times during the Seven Days. He was often late to carry out the attacks that he was ordered to do and things like that, and so... When you look at Stonewall's career during this war, it seems like he's a lot better when he's in like an independent command as he was in the Valley, but that when he's operating directly under someone who's right there, he oftentimes is kind of slow and doesn't always follow his orders, which is ironic because it's the exact sort of thing that if one of his own subordinate officers did, he'd have him court-martialed. Now, over the course of the seven days... Lee's army had actually suffered worse casualties than McClellan's, and since Lee's army had been smaller to begin with, you could say proportionally he lost much more. And when you look at most of the individual engagements of the Seven Days, they were actually Union victories. And yet the Seven Days would be a strategic, massive win for the South, as Lee succeeded in forcing McClellan away from Richmond and ultimately out of eastern Virginia. Philip Kearney, who was one of McClellan's subordinate generals, was astonished at McClellan's decision to retreat, despite all the damage they were inflicting on Lee, and he said he thought McClellan must be motivated either by cowardice or by treason. Historians Murray and Sia say that by this time, McClellan had instilled a command culture in the Army of the Potomac that would last long after he'd been removed from commanding that army, a command culture that was characterized by, in their words, rigid obedience to orders, a general lack of initiative and aggressiveness, an emphasis on date of rank, and an unwillingness to cooperate. McClellan retreated to a spot known as Harrison's Landing on the James River, waited there, and then his army was eventually evacuated from the peninsula entirely. And this was really the beginning of Robert E. Lee as a legend in the South and in the Confederacy. 
He was the savior of Richmond, the savior of Northern Virginia, and people didn't look too closely at the casualties that he suffered, at how many of his plans actually didn't get achieved during the seven days, and they weren't asking questions about how sustainable is it for a much smaller army to just always go on offense and look to push the enemy around, even if it means you're suffering greater losses than the enemy is, and proportionally suffering much greater losses. At the time, all the Confederate public and press and government seemed to care about was that Lee succeeded at kicking McClellan out of the Richmond area and ultimately off the peninsula, and they took it as a massive win. In August, the Union Army would make another direct overland stab toward Richmond from D.C., from the northward, but they would be thwarted by another Confederate win at another battle called Bull Run, this one the Second Battle of Bull Run. And that's a battle I'm just not going to get into too much detail simply because I can't cover every battle in huge detail. last thing I want to talk about in this episode is the Maryland campaign, the Confederate invasion of Maryland and the Battle of Antietam, which took place on September 17, 1862. September 17, coincidentally, is also Constitution Day, and it's also my birthday. By early September, Lee was very encouraged by his strategic victory in the Peninsula Campaign and by the Confederacy's win at the Second Battle of Bull Run and he decided to go on strategic offense into Maryland. Normally, up to this point, he had been on strategic defense, but often tactical offense. Now he's going full-on strategic offense into a Union state. But it was a Union state that, of course, he believed had a lot of Confederate sympathizers in it. So beginning on September 5th, the Army of Northern Virginia began crossing into Maryland. When Lee invaded Maryland, part of his motivation was to try to force the Union Army into a decisive battle so that he could hopefully crush it. And part of his motivation was to try and bring Maryland into the Confederacy. Now, there were some areas of Maryland, such as the city of Baltimore and some of the other eastern counties, that had a fair number of Confederate sympathizers. But Lee's invasion route into Maryland took his army into the western counties of the state, which is where Union sympathies were the most strong. And so they ended up not having nearly as friendly of a civilian population to overcome their logistical problems, their supply shortages, which were always bad enough, even when operating on home turf or in friendly territory. Lee's armies lived off the land. They confiscated food, clothing, footwear, and other supplies from the locals that they badly needed. Now, it's true, they usually paid for these things. Lee tried to discourage plundering But, of course, they paid for these things with Confederate currency, which, as you may know, was rapidly going from worth not much to worth pretty much in practice almost nothing. And I'm sure the population was thrilled getting this worthless Confederate currency. I wonder if any of them had the foresight to realize that, well, you know, in 150 years or so, this might actually have some value as a collector's item. The Army of the Potomac, of course, went into Maryland to try and find Lee to stop him. Of course, they couldn't stand for a massive Confederate army to be in a Union state for very long. 
And as was often the case at this point in the war, they didn't have the greatest intelligence, and then they got another piece of intelligence manna from heaven, again fell into McClellan's lap, and again he failed to really do anything useful with it. What happened was, on September 13th, near the town of Frederick, Maryland, a Union corporal named Barton W. Mitchell happened to discover a parcel of paper that was wrapped around three cigars, and he and his buddies were totally excited about the free smokes, but then they quickly realized that the paper that had wrapped them up was far more valuable, because that piece of paper that had been wrapped around these cigars was a copy of none other than Robert E. Lee's battle plan, showing in detail exactly how dangerously dispersed the different parts of Lee's army were at the moment. Lee's army, which as always was outnumbered in the first place, was separated into two parts, with one part having been sent off toward Harper's Ferry. Armed with this information, Had George McClellan been decisive and aggressive, he could have relatively easily destroyed Lee's army in detail and maybe even won the war right there. Instead, for whatever reason, McClellan was convinced that the whole thing was a ruse, that this was not a real battle plan, even though someone in his staff actually verified the handwriting. And so McClellan, having having gotten this intelligence manna from heaven hesitated for 18 hours before he did anything, and the perfect opportunity for him to destroy Lee's army was lost. By September 15th, Lee's army was parked on a ridge outside of the town of Sharpsburg, with the Potomac River behind them and a creek called Antietam in front of them. And they were waiting for the other elements of Lee's army that had been dispersed further afield to come back. Soon, the Union army showed up on the far side of Antietam Creek. Even that late, at you know the latter part of September 15th, had McClellan attacked quickly that day, he still could have potentially won a massive victory. Instead, he hesitated even more, not launching his attack until the early morning of September 17th, which gave Lee some more time to work on reunifying his army, a process that wouldn't be fully complete prior to the beginning of fighting, but which ultimately would kind of happen at the last minute to save the Confederates. The battle began at dawn, with an attack by Union General Fighting Joe Hooker's Corps on Lee's army's left flank. They were aiming at a piece of high ground where the Confederates had artillery and on which stood a small Dunker church. In their way, Stonewall Jackson's men were hidden in woods behind a cornfield, and as his men advanced, Hooker spotted some bayonets glinting in the cornfield and ordered his artillery to fire into it. And what happened over the next few hours was that the two sides attacked and counterattacked each other in and around the cornfield more than a dozen times, pushing first through one way, then back the next, and kind of taking turns charging across the cornfield as literally hundreds of men fell within the first few minutes. A lot of the fighting back and forth across the cornfield took the form of nasty close-quarters combat, with men using rifle butts and bayonets and whatever else they might have had, in addition to small arms fire and artillery fire raining down and raking through. And witnesses said that pretty much every stalk of corn was chopped down by the end of the cornfield fight, with bodies lying everywhere. By mid-morning, casualties were already around 10,000. Jackson's men had held their position despite horrific losses. 
And if you go to the battlefield of Antietam today, they still plant where the cornfield was with corn so that you can kind of see what the battlefield would have looked like, obviously, minus all the dead and wounded bodies laying around. Then the Union made an attack in the center of Lee's army, where there was a sunken road that a couple of Confederate brigades would use as trenches. Lee ordered them to hold that position at all costs. Union troops attacked the heavily outnumbered Confederates holding that position again and again and again, taking horrific losses in the attack, until finally some Union troops found a position on which they could sort of fire down at the sunken road, and then were able to ultimately take the position. Over 5,000 casualties took place on this little half-mile stretch of wagon road, which then of course got the nickname Bloody Lane for obvious reasons. At the point at which the Union took Bloody Lane, they had severely damaged the Confederate center, and yet McClellan didn't follow up the success on Bloody Lane with any attacks to try to exploit it, even though he had plenty of manpower and reserve to do so. Then in the afternoon, the Union launched a third attack, this one under General Ambrose Burnside, who's most famous for being the guy who gives us the term sideburns to describe big bushy mutton chop whiskers on the side of your face. This attack took place on the Confederate right, and McClellan told Burnside that if he could establish a crossing of Antietam Creek, McClellan would then send in all the reserves he could to back up Burnside and exploit the the breach. So what happened was Burnside's 12,000 men, approximately, were trying to attack across Antietam Creek. And even though the creek was wadeable, I think most of the creek was at most waist deep. Even though the creek was wadeable, they were trying to take this stone bridge that spanned across it. The stone bridge was defended by just a few hundred Confederates, but they had a really great position on which they could fire down at the bridge. And as a result, it took several hours for the Union forces to break through this bottleneck and fight their way across the bridge to the other side. Once the Union succeeded in doing this, though, the Confederates retreated back towards the town of Sharpsburg. They looked like they could be broken, and had McClellan been very quick to send in all of his reserves to exploit this, maybe they could have been, but at the last minute, Confederate reinforcements under A.P. Hill showed up and managed to push Burnside's men back to the bridge. McClellan didn't send the reinforcements to help Burnside that he had promised, and at that point, the battle was basically over. Had McClellan aggressively reinforced and pressed the attack at any of the points when the Union started to break through, he really almost certainly could have wiped out Lee's army. He had the manpower to do it. Had General Ulysses Grant been commanding the Union forces at this battle, he may have won the war right there. Instead, McClellan being McClellan, he hesitated, he didn't exploit any of the breakthroughs, and Lee was ultimately able to extricate his army, despite taking horrible losses, to extricate what was left of his army intact back across the Potomac into Virginia. Union casualties totaled over 12,000 for this one day of battle, Confederate casualties over 10,000. And again, keeping in mind Lee's much smaller army, he had lost about a quarter of his force. Some of the Union soldiers and junior officers were absolutely flabbergasted that McClellan didn't follow up with an attack the next day or whatever. Lee was certain that even McClellan wouldn't be stupid enough to not launch a massive attack given how much damage Lee's army had taken, but McClellan did not. Counting both sides, 
over 3,600 men had been killed, and over 17,000 wounded, and close to 2,000 were either captured or missing. As was the case with so many battles during this war, photographs captured a lot of the horrors of the battlefield and what it looked like. Of course, they're in black and white, but even so, you get a more graphic and honest view of what a lot of these places look like in the aftermath. And it's sobering to remember that this is lying about in places like Virginia and Maryland and so on. It's not some far-flung corner of the world on the other side of the planet from America that we're used to thinking about when we think about war. By the way, the photo that's at the top of the show notes for this episode was a photo taken in the aftermath of the battle of the Sunken Road or Bloody Lane and shows you just piles of Confederate corpses. We're told that at one point during that particular part of the battle, Union soldiers, when they started to break through, were kneeling on piles of Confederate dead in order to shoot. This is how a journalist for the Philadelphia Inquirer described the situation in the aftermath of the Battle of Antietam. Quote, So sultry had been the atmosphere that decomposition had been making rapid progress. All countenances had swollen beyond the point of possible recognition. Features had become one dark, purplish mass of putridity. Here lay a rebel, still living, with introverted eye but with warm, pulsating heart. His brain was oozing slowly by a disgorging process from a bullet hole on either side of the head. End quote. A Union surgeon who was involved with the burial preparations after the battle wrote in a letter to his wife, quote, I have seen, stretched along in one straight line, ready for internment, at least a thousand blackened, bloated corpses with blood and gas protruding from every orifice and maggots holding high carnival over their heads. Every house for miles around is a hospital, and I have seen arms, legs, feet, and hands lying in piles, rotting in the blazing heat of a southern sky, unburied and uncared for, and still the knife went steadily in its work, adding to the putrid mess." This extremely bloody battle was a tactical draw. Neither army really won the battle, but it was a strategic victory for the Union because it ended Lee's invasion of Maryland and did force him to pull back into Virginia. The single bloodiest day of the war and of American history still. The Battle of Antietam had clearly raised the bar even higher on the slaughter and destruction, and yet even this level of carnage hadn't really produced a decisive outcome, which meant that this sort of thing would happen again and again and again. And even as the destruction and carnage escalated, very few people on either side had any serious conversations about what it was all really for, and about if what it was all really for was worth these sorts of costs.
If you liked what you heard in this podcast, there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist, to improve, and grow. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast in any way you can. Social media, online discussion boards, word of mouth, whatever. But to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it. Also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. And you can help the show financially several different ways. One of the best is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me if you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon so that I can verify you're a supporter and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.